We're kicking off tonight in our first session on uh, grace principles for parenting with the calling of a parent. And our main scripture text is going to be Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you want to make your way to Deuteronomy chapter 6, then I'll be there in just a moment. I read a fascinating piece entitled, Frazzled Families Pay for Advice from Parenting Coaches. When it comes to bedtime, homework, or managing meltdowns, a growing number of families are relying on their peers or parents. Aren't relying on their peers or their parents. They're turning to parenting coaches, if you can imagine this. Now, there's got to be people with money, but at any rate, um, these coaches charge from $125 to $350 a session. They meet with parents in person, over the phone, Uh, via Zoom and other things to set goals and develop a plan for each of them. Megan and Michael Flynn used to dread bedtime. Every night the couple spent two stressful hours putting their preschooler and toddler to bed. With help, they cut that time in half. Uh, They did it by hiring a parent coach who concluded they needed structure. Instead of caving into requests for book after book, they set a routine and they stuck to it. Megan Flynn said nighttime routines are such a struggle for so many people, and it was just nice to have somebody give us strategies to work with. Parenting is the hardest job in the world, but there's no training for it in advance. Thankfully, God has given us uh, principles in his word for parenting, and uh, we are given the grace of God above anything else to do it by trial and by error. Grace is the foundation for parenting. And when we talk about grace in parenting, we're talking about the unmerited favor that God has shown to us. And when I say grace parenting, I'm not talking about parenting without rules or boundaries or discipline or any of that. Uh, Rather, the focus is on we as parents trying to raise our kids in the way that our Heavenly Father deals with us. And I want to state something here at the outset that I think is very important and very applicable. The quickest path to failure as a parent is to parent your children in the path of moralism rather than grace, in performance rather than transformation. And what I mean by that is that if your goal of parenting is simply to get them in line with what you want them to do without reaching their hearts and shaping their hearts and shaping them spiritually. It'll last for a while, but when they get the opportunity at their own freedom, they're going to go well beyond that, and it's not going to be very successful. We find the idea of family rooted in the creation narrative. In Genesis 1 and verse 27 and 28, it says, So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And then Psalm 127, beginning in verse 1, says, unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, and offspring are reward. 
Now, there's some basic concepts that I want to note as we get started. And these are as important as what I just told you. The quickest path to parenting failure is to try to raise them in moralism rather than in grace transformation. These go along with that. There are no perfect parents. There are only parents in process. There are no perfect parents. There are only parents in process. It doesn't matter how good of a parent you are, how much effort you put into it, how much prayer you put into it. Uh, your children are going to have some stories to tell about you. And they're going to have some funny things to say about you. And they're going to have some experiences that they have had with you because they see you in the good and the bad and the ugly and everything in between. So we're not seeking perfection here. We're seeking faithfulness. And then there are no perfect families. There are only families in process. Same thing applies here. I also want to say to you, parenting is not a competition. It is a unique experience. So don't get wrapped up in the idea that you're trying to do your parenting the way somebody else is because you're worried that they're a better parent. You know, you see a lot, especially with this social media age that we live in, of super moms and families that are presented as the perfect family. And we see this ideal that really frustrates us and can really discourage us. Because maybe we might not have the same resources that another family has, or our life experiences might be different, or we might have a challenging child or challenging children, whatever the case might be. This is not a competition. This is you living out your unique experience with the children that God has entrusted to you. I would also say that no two families are exactly alike. There's variety in families. Personalities differ, um, and a lot of other things differ as well. But no two families are exactly alike, and that's not what we're striving for anyway. Parenting is filled with laughter and tears, victories and defeats, delights and disappointments, and blessings and discouragements, and everything in between. It is a full range of emotion and a full range of life experiences with children. There are two things that will sanctify you uh, more quickly probably than anything else. One is marriage. For those of you that God has called uh, into that family marriage relationship, and the other is children. And that process will sanctify you because uh, in a lot of ways you see yourself in your children as you're raising them. But then also they see you in the depths of who you are as well. Our ultimate goal as parents is to raise our children in the Lord and to release them. What we are aiming for, if possible, is for them to experience the lives that God has for them and how he has made them uniquely. And for every parent, there will come a time when we release those children to where they're going to make their own decisions And they're going to chart their own courses. And you can be assured that they're either going to follow faithfully or they're going to go off on an ill-advised path. And there's no guarantee which one they're going to go on. What we're trying to do is to lay that foundation for them so that we can release them and then trust that the Lord is going to continue to work in their lives. And one of the pains that a lot of parents have and grandparents have is they have children that have not gone in the way that they've raised their children or how they've prayed for them or how they intended for them to go. 
and that can be very discouraging. But ultimately what we have to realize is that people do have this thing called free will. They end up making their own decisions at times. They don't always honor God. They don't always go in the direction we want them to. But that doesn't mean that our prayers stop or that we don't believe that God can bring them back to ultimately to where they need to be. But our goal in this is to uh, progressively release them as they're going along. Where there's little moments in life where they're getting a little bit of freedom and they're getting older and, and, and they have the ability to make decisions and then ultimately they're doing their own thing and they're on their own, making their own decisions. Of course, with continued guidance and encouragement and prayers uh, from their parents. The responsibility of the church is to come alongside of you and to encourage you in your God-given role. And what I would say here is that there are boundaries that we cannot and must not cross for our distinct roles to remain clear. What we have to remember in the church is that you are the parents of your children. We're not the parents of your children. We're not going to try to take on the role of the parents of your children. You have that responsibility. But what we can do is we can come alongside of you to encourage you and pray for you and give you good biblical instruction and help you disciple those children to be the best that they can be. And that's always a tension because you have different um, levels of parents, really, some who are very engaged and they're really focused on discipling their kids and they're really intent in their own spiritual maturity and they're growing. And then you got parents that are disengaged and then you got parents that are lost. I mean, it's a whole spectrum of, of, uh, of parents that are coming from different places. And as a church, that's sometimes a challenge for us. But I think it's important that the church is not the parent of your child. Um, they do not belong to us other than in the spiritual sense that we all belong to one another. We're responsible to disciple you as you try to disciple them. Now, you might have heard the terms uh, free-range parenting and helicopter parenting. And I would say there's got to be a balance somewhere between free-range parenting and helicopter parenting. George Barner wrote the book Revolutionary Parenting, and he says there are three dominant approaches to parenting in the United States that he's identified. He said parenting by default is what he terms the path of least resistance. This approach is influenced by cultural norms and traditions. The objective is to keep everyone as happy as possible so that the parents can still enjoy the other prioritized aspect of their lives. And then there's trial and error parenting that's based on the notion that every parent is an amateur at raising children. Uh, there are no absolute guidelines to follow, so the best that the parents can do is experiment, observe outcomes, and improve upon their successes and failures. He says, in this incremental approach, the goals of parenting are to continually perform better than most other parents. But Barna found a, that a more revolutionary approach to parenting was the least common of all. Revolutionary parenting takes God's words on life and family at face value and seeks to apply them faithfully and consistently. Perhaps the most startling difference in these approaches to parenting has to do with the desired outcomes. Parenting, he says, by default and trial and error are both approaches that enable parents to raise their children without the effort of defining their lives. Revolutionary parenting, which is based on one's faith in God, makes parenting a life priority. And then Barna says this, 
those who engage in revolutionary parenting define success as intentionally facilitating faith-based transformation in the lives of their children rather than simply accepting the aging and survival of the child as a satisfactory result. So what can we learn about the calling of a parent from Deuteronomy chapter 6? We're going to read a passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy 6 in just a moment, but I want to give you just a little bit of background to remind you the context of that uh, particular Scripture passage. Uh, Deuteronomy means second law, uh, but it does more than give a copy of the law. Uh, the essence of it is that it is a restatement of the law of God for a new generation, meaning that uh, Moses' series of sermons restates God's commands originally given to the Israelites some 40 years earlier in Exodus and Leviticus. So Deuteronomy 1 and verse 1 says, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel. Deuteronomy was written somewhere around 1406 B.C. at the end of the 40 years of wandering endured by the nation of Israel. The people were camped on the east side of the Jordan River on the plains of Moab across from the city of Jericho. Uh, They were on the verge of entering the promised land. And the children who had left Egypt were now adults. They're ready to conquer and to settle the land. But before they would do that, God was going to reiterate his covenant with them. So we might think about Deuteronomy 6 as the preamble uh, to the recitation of Deuteronomy, which includes the Shema, uh, which Jesus identified, of course, as the greatest commandment, to love God and to love one another. The emphasis is on what their lives should be like in the future. So he's trying to give them a preferred idea of what the future should look like. There's some narrative about Moses. There's this transition of leadership that's going on from Moses to Joshua. And then finally, it's the death of Moses. So the first point that I want to note is that the calling of a parent is to teach your children to know God. The calling of a parent is to teach your children to know God. Let's read the first five verses here in Deuteronomy 6. This is the command, the statutes and ordinances the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you so that you may follow them in the land you're about to enter and possess. Do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping all his statutes and commands I am giving you, your son and your grandson, so that you may have a long life. Verse 3, listen Israel and be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly. Because the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. We'll note here that knowing God begins with fearing God. In verse 2, he says, do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life. Proverbs 9 and verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, the idea of rebellion is a defiance or opposition against authority or control. We see the idea of rebellion against authority or control rampant in our current culture. There was a report just a couple of days ago entitled, spiraling crisis, thefts from cargo trains 
have spiked in L.A. County, Union Pacific says. According to this particular article, rail thefts have spiked in L.A. County with thieves climbing aboard cargo trains, breaking into containers and stealing packages, and they said they have seen rail thefts increase by 160% in the county over the past year. In fact, during the busy holiday season, more than 90 containers were compromised on average every day. So you wonder what happened to that pair of shoes that you ordered for Christmas that never showed up? Well, evidently, it might have gotten taken off of a cargo train somewhere in California. Another example, in New York City, uh, Big Apple crimes have jumped by more than a third in the first two weeks of this year as compared to last year. And transit crimes alone have soared by 65%. You might have heard about the lady who was in the uh, Times Square station and she was standing there on the platform minding her own business like some of you might have done if you've traveled to New York. And a homeless man with mental uh, illness or uh, evil or something, I'm not sure what, came up and out of nowhere pushed her in front of the train and killed her. And there have been a number of things that have been like that. Um, Last week, a man walked in the Family Dollar Store on 14th Street West in Huntington, uh, walked to the laundry detergent aisle and loaded two 20-gallon totes with laundry detergent and walked out telling the clerk he had a gun when he was approached. He said, why do you share those particular stories? Because they have something in common. And what they have in common is a rebellion against authority. They have in common a lack of concern about any kind of accountability, any kind of reprisal, any kind of consequence whatsoever. And the reason I state this is because respect for authority begins at home. The root of respect for authority is a fear of God and our Creator. Uh, Right brings blessing, wrong brings consequences. And when we think about having a fear of God, it means to have a reverence for God, to be in awe of Him. It's the basis of knowing God to begin with. So when we say we're trying to teach our children to fear God, what we're trying to teach them to do is to respect Him and to obey Him and to submit to Him and to worship Him. And if there is a lack of respect for authority in the home, it typically is because there's not been a teaching in that home about what healthy authority is and what it ought to look like. So practically, teach your children what authority is. Teach it from the biblical perspective of fearing God. Teach it from the practical perspective of the fact that they're going to have authority over them their entire lives. It doesn't matter what your role is. Even if you're in charge of something, maybe even more so if you're in charge of something, you've got people that you have to answer to. You've got authority structures in place that you have to deal with. And the sooner that you can teach your children to respect that authority because they fear God, the easier it's going to be for them in their lives. And if they're always making excuses and there's always a reason and there's always some type of uh, excuse that they have for why they don't want to do that, it's going to be trouble for them for the rest of their lives. Knowing God not only includes fearing God, but it includes loving God. According to verse 5, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Uh, John writes in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, God is love. He defines it. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God is love. He defines it by his character. And because he is love, he gave us that greatest gift of all. Now, from the time children are born, Christian parents have the opportunity to represent the love of God to their children. And I strongly believe that you plant the seeds of the gospel in the love of Jesus in the lives of your children. And I encourage people to pray for the salvation of their children even before they're born. Ask the Lord that he would bring them to a place of genuine repentance and salvation. And continue that prayer because many times in Christian homes, one of the challenges is uh, children come to faith early on, and that can certainly be genuine. It can bear the fruit for decades to come, but we also want to be concerned that it is genuine, that we want them to have taken that step of faith on their own, not just because it was familiar to them or not just because it seemed the right thing to do uh, to honor their parents uh, or whatever. And we have the ability to begin to pray for those little ones and to begin to shape them in a way that uh, they can relate to from the very early stages in their lives. I tell you just by way of personal testimony, there is a, a book entitled, uh, and I've shared this before, but there's a book entitled Leading Little Ones to God that was actually written in the early 1960s. It's a simple little book. It, it covers some broad themes like the nature of God, sin, salvation, the church, um, prayer, uh, different things that we would uh, see as important. And I can remember my mother consistently using that book when I was very small. And it was what we used for our devotions. It had scripture in there and it had concepts in there that were important. And by God's grace, I came to faith when I was seven years old. And I will have been a Christian for 43 years next month. And I thank God for the beginning prayers and influence of the gospel that I had. And I thank God that he saw fit to bring me to salvation at an early age. And that's what we want to be praying for for our children. Is it going to happen that early for everybody? No, that's up to them and the Lord. We're, that, we're not controlling that process. But what we are doing is being faithful with the seeds to help them know God and to understand what it means to love God. And we often think of the many things that God um, asks of us. But you know what God ultimately wants from us? He wants our love. That's what he wants from us. We complicate it and we, we put all sorts of things in, into play. But what God really wants from us is our love. And your love for your kids, your love for your grandkids might be the very thing that influences them to come to know the love of God. And if they give everything else to the Lord, whether it be their money or their time or their efforts or their will, and they don't do it with love, then ultimately it's all wasted. It's not what it could be. Now, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4 through 9 was spoken daily in the Jewish tradition. They actually developed a three-part prayer that included additionally Deuteronomy 11 and then Numbers 15. And the idea was that those three passages, Deuteronomy 6, uh, Deuteronomy 11, and then Numbers 15, covered the whole scope of the Ten Commandments. That was the concept. And Jesus, uh, of course, as I mentioned, referred to it. But practically, we can teach our children to love God uh, 
as we love them. So if the love of God is endless for his children, then what follows is you can't love a child too much. I remember people telling us that when we first had little babies and uh, some of the older people, they say, now you can't love that baby too much. And, and they meant that that, 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 that you could not show too much love because of the comparison of how God loves us. So if we want to err on anything, we want to err on the side of excessive love before we want to err on the side of a deficient kind of a love. Teach your children to know God. Second point I want to make here is the calling of a parent is to teach your children to walk with God. Now let's read verses 6 through 9 that I referred to. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your city gates. Walking with God requires trusting the Word of God. Verse 6, these words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Now let's just think about this for a moment. When people rebel against God, they do so, maybe just because they want to, even if they believe the word, but a lot of times they do so because they've never had a foundational belief that God meant what he said and that what God said was true. So we want to instill in our children the concept of trusting the Word of God. And here's one of the challenges we have in particular with church kids. A lot of church kids have head knowledge, but they lack heart knowledge. They identify the stories. They maybe can recite some verses, but it's easy to know the stories and recite the verses and not really have the Word in your heart. So the challenge for us with this familiarization that they have, familiarity that they have, is to be sure that they have it in their hearts as best we can. And we want to encourage them in that because young people, as they age and as they grow up, are bombarded with messages that are contrary to the Bible. And your goal is to shape a biblical worldview in your children. So you want to practically be able to do that in a way that is age-appropriate for them. You are going to shape a biblical worldview in your children if you intentionally do it. And if not, you're going to shape some other type of worldview for them. They're going to have a worldview. And that worldview is going to guide their lives. That worldview is going to help them make decisions. That worldview at times is going to hurt them if they have an unbiblical one. So we want to try to shape a biblical one with them. So how do you do that practically? Well, I think it starts for younger children with things like a a good story Bible. Uh, just trying to instill in them some some of the basic concepts in a way that uh, identifies with their age level and their ability to comprehend. Um, I think a good practice is uh, devotionally to just read a few verses at a time with your children, especially as they start to get a little bit of age on them. Don't make it complicated. Uh, Maybe just take a book of the Bible and read through that book of the Bible with them and pray accordingly. Uh, That was one of the more effective things that we did with our children, especially as they got older and were reading and they were able to comprehend things. 
is that uh, uh, in the evenings what we would do uh, before we had dinner or some other time when it was convenient is we might just take the Gospel of John and we're not trying to go through it with speed. We're just trying to go through it little by little and we say, okay, we're going to start in chapter 1 and we're going to read bits of it till we get done and we're going to do the next one the next night and we're just going to continue on. If we miss a night because of a practice or a ball game or something else or we were just undisciplined that night, we're going to pick up where we left off and we're going to keep on going. And you can do that in an age-appropriate kind of a way, uh, whether it's with a story Bible or as they age, you're doing it with the uh, Scripture itself in that way. And I would encourage Scripture memory. That was one of our weaker points. We didn't do as good of a job uh, with Scripture memory as we would probably have liked to have done. Uh, They were involved within in church and some other things, but that was not a strength, so I don't want to present it as something that it wasn't, but I think it's valuable. And then build on what they're learning in church. Have those conversations with them about their Bible fellowship lesson. Have a conversation with them about what they got out of Awana. Uh, be able to talk to them about what the things that they're learning. Let them tell you those stories. And I can tell you all, especially some of you who have kids that are beyond the baby stage or a little bit older, some of you all have got some incredibly sharp kids. And they know what they're getting. But make sure that it's not just in their head. Make sure that you're trying to get it in their heart uh, as well. And then I think walking with God requires being faithful uh, to the guidance of God. You'll notice here in verse 7, He says, repeat, talk about, bind them, write them. And by the time of Jesus, the Jewish people based their practice of wearing phylacteries on this passage. So in other words, they would take these small boxes that held parchment with scriptures on them, and they would put them on their forehead or on their hands with leather straps. And Jesus actually condemned it as an outward expression because of what they had made of it. Uh, They also practiced nailing a small container holding a scripture passage to the doorpost of their homes. And we don't want to get caught up necessarily in the particular application of it, but here's what's encouraged. Living out your faith as you go in the ordinary moments of life intentionally. It's as you're on the move, you're living out your faith. So here's what that might look like. You might have a second grader who uh, is in a group with their friends or a sports group or they're at school or wherever they might be, and they encounter a particularly difficult situation that requires them to make a, a moral decision of their own related to that particular situation. They're processing it, and they've heard the basics of truth, and they want to do what's right because they want to honor you. But they might have some questions about that. So they say, hey, let me tell you about something that happened to me when I was with my friends or when I was at school or when I was at soccer practice or whatever. And those teachable moments when you're living life with your kids and you're interacting with them as you're going are some of the most valuable teaching moments you'll ever have. They'll probably have a more significant application even than the devotional that you might have as a structured devotional. And in those teachable moments, if you take advantage of those, let them talk. Don't just give them an immediate solution, but talk with them. Help them process it. Ask them questions. Well, what do you think you ought to do in this situation? Why did you respond that way? What happened when you responded that way? How do you think you can honor God in this situation? 
And it's in those moments when they're actually processing it and they're thinking through it for themselves, those teachable moments is where you're discipling them and you're shaping them in a way that is most useful to them. Don't uh, overlook those ordinary events of life on the go where you're intentionally doing that. He says in verse 17, further down, carefully observe the commands of the Lord your God, the decrees and statutes. Verse 18, do what is right and good in the Lord's sight. Now, I find it interesting that the theme of doing what is right and good is repeated numerous times in the Old Covenant. And here's the basic template. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings a curse. And I can remember when I was growing up being consistently taught two things. One, remember who you are. And two, do what is right. Remember who you are and do what is right. Now, I appreciate both of these. But I also want you to know they're ultimately limited because you can follow the thinking outwardly and your heart not be where it needs to be. And I know that because I experienced that. I remembered who I was, and that meant that I didn't want to embarrass my family. I didn't want to do something that was going to bring the wrath down upon me because I did something that poorly represented my family. And I did what was right a lot of times just because it was the right thing to do. And listen, there's value in doing things that are right just because it's right, even if you don't feel like it or you didn't think it was a great idea in the moment. But if that's the end-all, be-all of your discipleship, it's going to come up short eventually. It's going to catch up with you eventually when you're dealing with your kids. So as you're teaching them to remember who they are and to do what is right, teach them that deeper heart level of why are you doing this? Because you want to honor God. And in the new covenant in Jesus Christ, it's clear that God is more concerned with transforming us from the inside. Teach your children to walk with God. There's a third point here, and that is the calling of a parent is to warn your children of the consequences of forgetting God. The calling of a parent is to warn your children of the consequences of forgetting God. Now, we find the text here in verses 10 through 25. I'm not going to read it all now at the moment, but I'd encourage you to do so for yourself. Remember, God was about to bring them into the land that he promised This place was large, it was beautiful, cities they didn't build, houses and cisterns and vineyards and groves that were already there. They were going to gain an abundant, prepared land. But there was inherent danger in front of them. Verse 12, be careful not to forget the Lord. The word forget comes from a verb in the original Hebrew, which means to stop remembering to ignore, to dismiss from the mind, to abandon, to neglect, or to cease to care about. Moses knew that if they were not careful, they would forget how God had delivered the nation out of slavery in Egypt. They would forget how God had cared for them for 40 years in the wilderness. They would forget all of this when they got into the prosperous land. And Moses explained in Deuteronomy 8, He said, he did all this so that you would never say to yourself, I've achieved this wealth with my own strength and my own energy. Forgetting the Lord is what would get them into trouble. 
Now, you know the rest of the story. The cycle's actually repeated throughout the history of Israel, especially during the time of the judges. Uh, God would bless uh, an obedient Israel, and they would prosper, and they would begin to set their heart on those things instead of the Lord who blessed them. And God would allow chastisement on their lives so that they would turn back to him. And they would repent and obey again, and then God would bless them. By way of practical application, when you take for granted what the Lord has done, it's easy to forget him. And let me give you a real-life example of this in, in West Virginia. I cannot tell you how many people I have talked to who have had a faithful pawpaw or mama, maybe even a preacher in the mix, and yet their lives don't look anything like the faithful pawpaw or mama or the preacher who tried to influence them. Generationally, people forget quickly. And the reality is a very high number of young people walk away from the church when they reach adulthood. Alan Roxborough, in his book, Joining God, Remaking the Church and Changing the World, shared some very sobering statistics. He said, if you were born between 1925 and 1945, there is a 60% chance that you're in church today. If you were born between 1946 and 1964, there's a 40% chance that you're in church today. If you were born between 1965 and 1983, there's a 20% chance that you're in church today. And if you were born after 1984, there is less than a 10% chance that you're in church today. Notice that with each successive generation, boomer, builder, Gen X, millennial, the church is losing ground. And while this downward spiral is already a very transparent reality within mainline denominations, whether it be Catholic or Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, evangelical churches are not far behind. The fact is America is on a trajectory to become like post-Christian Europe. Now, what are some possible reasons for that, and what can we learn from it in grace parenting? I think one possible reason is that uh, people never own their faith for themselves, and perhaps they were not even saved to begin with. So it's important as parents, we can't guarantee it, but it's important as parents that we work toward trying to help them own their faith for themselves. We want the gospel to be real for them, not just in their head, but in their heart. Sometimes a life change, like simply moving away for college or a work change, uh, prevents people from uh, participating and they don't get back into the habit until later on. Um, and then for some people, the first time their faith truly got challenged, they were not prepared to deal with it because they didn't have a biblical worldview that had been shaped in a way that was helpful for them to be able to encounter the questions and attacks that they were going to experience. The blessing is many will return. Psalm 22 and verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he'll not depart from it. 
Perhaps you're praying for a child who has walked away or is disengaged. And I would say to you, don't give up. The Lord can work in ways that you cannot. But as you do that, teach your children the consequences of forgetting God. Teach them what they're going to experience, the consequences of not faithfully walking with him. So I say this to you tonight in conclusion. As a parent, you have the ability to influence and shape the spiritual narrative of your family. Can't guarantee anything. But you have the ability and the responsibility to influence and shape the spiritual narrative of your family. You want to be the example of the parent that makes your child want to do the right thing rather than to learn from a poor lesson. You don't want to be a bad example for them to have to overcome. And I guarantee you there's some folks in this room this evening who have had bad examples. You, you didn't have that Christian parent or parents who shaped you as you would want them to be. And one of the reasons that you are so intent about raising your own children and being a parent who's driven by grace is because you didn't experience it and you wanted to change the narrative. We've got the ability to change the narrative. In fact, we can make an impact generationally if we maintain faithfulness to the Lord. So my hope in these coming weeks as we work through some foundational stuff and then get to some very practical application of things that we deal with as parents that it's going to be helpful for all of us and that the Lord will give us the grace that we need to be the imperfect parents that we are, but yet to be in process and raising our families in process. So let me pray. Father, thank you tonight that we have the privilege of calling you our Father. You are the complete Father. You are the good Father who is gracious toward us in so many ways. I pray that as we follow your example that our lives would be overflowing with grace. I pray for every individual and every family that's represented here and who might listen to this later on, that you would give us the strength that we need to honor you and to lift up Jesus Christ in our homes. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.